Thank you, Pastor Kenneth. Well, I'm uh, just like the refrain in the psalm, I'm the third blue shirt coming up on the stage. But there's some progression. Now, when my uh, kids need or want something, who do you think they will call for? You know, when my kids are feeling unwell, they will go to mommy, right? Because mommy knows what kind, what kind of uh, med- medication to feed them, you know, and how to care for them. And they will get tender, loving care from mommy. Now, if they are sick and they come to me, it will probably be drink water and let's go and see a doctor. Now, when they want to have, when they want help with their studies, who are they going to go to? Again, it will be mommy, right? Because mommy is the studious one since young and she has been keeping abreast with what is going on in school. Going to daddy is pointless again because daddy didn't even know how he went through school. Now, I remember a time when I resolved myself and said, I'm going to help my kids with, my, with their studies. So I bought an extra science textbook to study as well. However, it landed up collecting dust on my table. And then I tried to help my daughter with history. Uh, and I, I read her history textbook within an hour or so. But I had no idea how to help her with her homework because I can only talk through the events with her, but I simply had no techniques in answering the question that are required in her her work. However, when they want to watch TV, they will come to daddy because I am always the permissive one who gives them a lot of slack and I watch with them. And if they want to play sports, they will also call me because I am often happy to train and play with them. Or as my son will say, mommy is too slow. Now, when we know that we need help or when something is wrong, we look for the right people to solve the problem. See, on a national level, the people we often look to for help and to save are often the politicians. See, when, when Germany was reeling from the shame and pain of losing World War I, Adolf Hitler was the man they looked to. They looked to Hitler as the saviour who will bring back their glory days. And in more recent history, I still remember when Barack Obama was first elected President of the United States. Almost the entire world erupted with joy. There were celebrations in many parts of the world. And eight years years later, many of the Americans thought they found another saviour in Donald Trump, who will make America strong again. Now, did any of them save the nation or the world? What about Israel? As we read through the book three of the Psalms, we know that the nation is in trouble, suffering in defeat and exile. Who should Israel call upon? See, when the situation is so sad, who should God's people call on to save them? Now, the situation in Psalm 80 is slightly different from the Psalms in the previous weeks. See, for those newer to Christianity or younger in age, let me just give you a quick brief 
uh, history lesson on Israel. So you see on the slide, the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom after King Solomon. The southern kingdom is known as Judah and it's made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom is known as Israel, which makes it rather confusing, right? Uh, it is also known as Ephraim because Ephraim is the biggest of the 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. And as history goes, the northern kingdom was first exiled by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And that is about 140 years before the southern kingdom was exiled by the Babylonians. You know, in the earliest Psalms in this series, the setting is the Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom. We read about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the southern kingdom. The temple, which is in Jerusalem, is often described as being in ruins and there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. But Psalm 80 is slightly different. It seems that the setting of the psalm is the defeat and the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. Now, how do we know that? Well, verse 1 highlighted Joseph. And Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are elevated to be part of the 12 tribes in the allocation of the land. Now, these two tribes, especially Ephraim, were the central and the major tribes of the northern kingdom. However, you may ask, well, if it's really just about the northern kingdom, why did they mention Benjamin then? Because Benjamin is in the southern kingdom. Well, again, for context, Benjamin and Joseph are the only sons from Rachel, the second wife of Jacob. Hence, they are the closest among all the other tribes. So the mention of Benjamin here may be to show solidarity and intimacy between the two kingdoms. They are one people, and one nation after all. That sounds like our national song, but yeah. Now, it's like how football clubs in England can be arch enemies, right? The players and the fans, you know, can be at each other's throats when they play against each other. However, when the players play together for the Euros and the World Cup, they put aside all their rivalries and support the same national team. That's also similar to the situation, you know, for the young students among us during inter-class games, you know, you will be at each other's throats. But when you go for inter-school games, all the rival classes, all the rival students, they will come together to play and to cheer for the same school. And furthermore, the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in verse 1 tells us that Jerusalem and the temple are not destroyed yet. Therefore, the historical setting of Psalm 80 is probably sometime around the Assyrian exile of the northern kingdom. But as the psalmist write this psalm in Jerusalem, he is looking at the destruction of their sister kingdom. He is writing this psalm in solidarity with their fellow kinsmen, lamenting and pleading on behalf of Israel as a whole. See, when the psalmist laments and pleads for this nation, who is he calling to save them? Now, that's the big question for us today. Who should God's people call on 
to be saved? Now, the first answer to that question is found in the plea in verses 1 to 3. It's firstly to call on God, the shepherd king who guides and protects his people. Now, there are four pleas in the first two verses. The psalmist call on God, the shepherd king, to give ear, to shine forth, to stir up and come to save them. See, the psalmist pleaded with the shepherd of Israel to firstly give ear to his pleas in verse 1. Now, to give ear is not literal, right? It's to listen. The psalmist is pleading for God to pay attention to what he's calling God to do. Closely connected to the idea is the plea for God to stir up his might and come to save them in verse 2. He has the idea of awakening someone powerful from his sleep to do something great. Now, many of us will know that during the Second World War, the United States of America was resisting to join into the war. However, things changed when the Japanese decided to launch an unprovoked and unannounced attack on Pearl Harbor. The Japanese Navy succeeded in destroying a lot of the American Pacific fleet and killed many soldiers. But it was said that the Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, who orchestrated the attack, made this remark. I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Now this is unproven, but nonetheless, a famous radio presenter by the name of Donald McNeil made this statement the next day after the bombing. Sometimes you can strike a giant when he's dozing momentarily. When the giant is, awake, is awakened, look out. See, indeed, if a, a, great, a giant power like the USA is aroused from his sleep after being attacked, the consequences will be great, has history proved. And what more of God, who has the power over all of creation? And then in verse 3, the psalmist calls to God to restore them. Now, if you are in a, in a discipleship group or you're in basic, you will know that this, this verse is actually a refrain that's repeated uh, with some progression in verse 4 and then later on in verse 19. Now, the verb restore can be to ask God to restore the nation you know, in, a, in a physical, in a material way since they are now all in ruins. However, the form of the verb in Hebrew, can mean that the psalmist is asking God to turn them or to cause them to turn back. Now, this might imply that the psalmist is asking God not only to restore the physical aspect of the nation, but to restore Israel's relationship with Him. See, unless the relationship between God and Israel is reconciled, there will be no way out. See, the restoration of their circumstances must come from a restoration of their relationship with each other. And that is further evidenced by asking God to let His face shine, presumably, on Israel. Now, this is a phrase that echoes Aaron's uh, blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 to 26, is to ask God to look upon them in favour. 
You see, if I'm angry with you, I wouldn't even look at you. So by asking God to let his face shine upon you is to ask God to look at you in favor. And if God was to do so, they would be saved. But why did the psalmist plead to God? Why not others? Well, for God is known as the shepherd in verse 1, and even as early as in the book of Genesis, he is known as the shepherd. The shepherd is one who guides. The shepherd is one who protects his sheep. See, sheep are easily frightened, and they are powerless. They are, they are often at the mercy of wolves and other predators. So the shepherd, the shepherd is very important in leading them to the right places and to protect them and to keep them from harm. However, it seems as if God is asleep. The shepherd is asleep and not Israel's shepherd during the exile. So the psalmist here is calling God to live up to his role to show loving care and guidance to his people. However, the psalmist is not only calling out to God as a shepherd, but is also calling God as the king. Verse 1 also tells us that God is also known as the one who is enthroned upon the cherubim. That sounds like a weird thing for us to know, right? What does it mean? Well, it's a description of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. See, on it are two cherubims, which are angels facing each other with wings folded in as if in worship of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Ark is often described as God's footstool. As such, the cover of the Ark symbolizes the throne of God. It represents God's position of exaltation and rule. But the Ark is also a symbol of God's presence with His people. See, during the journey from the wilderness to the promised land, the Ark is always at the center of all the tribes. And when they build the temple, it is the centerpiece in the Holy of Holies. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest will sprinkle blood of the sacrifices on the cover for the forgiveness of sins. That means that the Ark also symbolized God's mercy. Therefore, when the psalmist calls out to God to shine forth and stir up his might to save them, he is calling the powerful, yet intimate, and merciful king of the universe to save them. You see, if anyone, if anyone will hear their cries to save them, it must be someone who is able and willing to do so. See, the description of God as the shepherd king of Israel certainly fits the bill. You know, there are times when, uh, when family members ask me to you know, fetch them here, fetch them there, or, or they'll ask me to, oh, I'm missing this, I lost this, can you help me find it in, my, in the house? You know, or to do favours for them. Or when my children keep breaking their phones, I keep forgiving them again and keep subsidising their replacement. Now, why would I do so? Well, that's because they are my children and my family. They have a close and intimate relationship with me. They do not appeal to me as strangers, but as people close to me. And similarly, the psalmist can only count on God, who has an intimate relationship with them, to show them favour 
and who is powerful enough to save them. So who should God's people call on to be saved? It's firstly to call on God, the shepherd king who guides and protects his people. But secondly, it is to call on the God of hosts who is able to defend and fight for them. See, verses 4 to 6 are a protest or a complaint by the psalmist. The psalmist firstly protests in verse 4 that God is still being angry with his people's prayers. It's a way of saying that God has been ignoring all their prayers. See, from the context, their prayers are probably to, to be saved from the exile and, and to be restored. And you notice that the psalmist is asking, how long will God be angry and not why? Well, this assumes that the psalmist knows that whatever they're experiencing right now is duly deserved. The defeat and the exile of the northern kingdom is God's just punishment for their sins. However, the psalmist is pleading and protesting that it has been too long and too painful. The psalmist then describes the pain of the people in verses 5 to 6. See, they are eating their food with tears and drinking their own tears. Can you imagine that? See, it must be terribly painful if you are eating your meals while sobbing, right? When you are eating your favorite bachom, you are still crying. See, eating and drinking are supposed to be good experiences, but yet they are not for the people of Israel. The grief must have been so unbearable. It is unbearable because the nation has been an object of contention for her neighbours. See, they have been defeated, defeated and have no means to protect themselves. The neighbouring countries all just swarm in and are fighting each other for the spoils. So near the tail end of uh, the Qing dynasty of China, you know, Britain and France pushed to finalise or to legalise the export of opium to China. Now, knowing the bad effects of opium, China stopped it. As a result, the British and the French armies waged a war against China, which is now known as the Second Opium War. See, armed with more superior and powerful weapons, the British and the French armies crushed the Chinese army, even though they were outnumbered. They then looted the two summer palaces of all their treasures and even burned down one of them. And that palace remained in ruins today. Now, the Qing dynasty was then forced to sign treaties that ceded territories such as Hong Kong to different countries, opened their ports, and finally to legalize the opium trade that further devastated the country. And soon enough, other nations such as Russia and Japan, they all jumped in as well to take a piece here and take a piece there of China. Now, that was perhaps similar to what was happening when Psalm 80 was written. Neighboring countries took whatever they could from the defeated Israel and may even contend with each other about who should have what. And the enemies were, were laughing, they were ridiculing them without any sympathy at all. That is the extent of their shame, their bitterness, and powerlessness. But the punchline of the protest is this. The psalmist knew 
that all the shame, the bitterness and the powerlessness are the results of God's doing. If you look at verses 5 to 6, note the you there. By letting Israel be defeated by the Assyrians as judgment, it was God who made them eat bread with tears. It was God who made them an object of contentions and a laughingstock. So why should God's people call on in such a situation? Well, the psalmist turns to the God of hosts in verse 7. It's the same plea as verse 3, but the psalmist calls on God now as the God of hosts. Now, the God of hosts, or the God Almighty in NIV, is not, it's not a normal word right, we use in our daily language. The host here refers to the heavenly armies. In other words, the God of hosts means the commander of the heavenly armies of angels. It's to describe God as the divine warrior. And why did psalmist call on God of the heavenly armies? Well, if God is the one who caused Israel to be defeated by either helping the enemies or by not defending his people, then he is the only one they, have to, they can and have to depend on to fight on their side. See, if anyone is capable of reversing their sad situation, it will be God who commands the armies of angels. Only the God of hosts can save them. Who should God's people call on to be saved? It is firstly to call on God, the shepherd king who guides and protects his people. Secondly, it is to call on the God of hosts who is able to defend and fight for them. And thirdly, it is to call the Lord God of hosts who will be gracious and faithful to save and restore them. Now the next section of the psalm begins with the psalmist describing Israel as a vine. See, God brought this vine out of Egypt, drove out all the nations in Canaan and planted the vine there. God then cleared the ground for it to take deep roots and fill the, the land. Now this is a metaphorical way of describing Israel's history from the Exodus to the conquest and the settlement in Canaan. And how well did this vine grow? Well, it grew so big that the mountains were covered with its shades and the mighty cedars with its branches. Well, that is Jack and the Beanstalk for you. The vine is such a small plant with you know, no strong trunk. So for it to cover the mountains and the cedars is a mind-blowing picture. And furthermore, verse 11 tells us that its branches reaches, or reach to the sea and it shoots to the river. Now again, it's a metaphorical way of describing how big the kingdom of Israel was at her peak. You know, during the reign of King David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel reached as north as Lebanon, where the cedars were, as south as the mountain ranges of Mount Sinai, as west as, as the Mediterranean Sea, and as east as the Euphrates River. See, once again, these are the results of God's actions as denoted by the use in verses 8 to 9. See, their success was neither by their might nor by chance. 
It was the result of God's careful preparation and strong execution. See, by this description of God's careful and powerful action, that makes a sharper contrast with their situation now in verses 12 to 13. See, God has since allowed her walls to be broken, and anyone who passes by can take whatever they want. All the enemies around them, big or small, ravage and feed on them. And once again, it's the image of mass looting and open mob robbery. Israel has no means to defend herself and is powerless in stopping people from taking everything away from them. So what did the Psalmist do next? Unsurprisingly, he petitioned God to act. In verse 14, the Psalmist calls God to turn again. Now the word turn is the same Hebrew word as restore, but in a different form. In essence, he is petitioning God to turn towards them and not to ignore them anymore. He asked God to look down from heaven and see, see their sad state and have regard for them. Now we all know, not all over the world, whenever there, you know, there's a disaster or there's great tragedy such as you know, like the recent crowd crash in Korea, the head of state will take a trip down to the affected areas. Well, it shows that he or she is, is paying attention to the situation and perhaps moved to take actions to address the problems. So the psalmist is likewise calling the God of this nation to come and look at their dire situation. They are, after all, the vine whom God has planted. Wouldn't God be moved by seeing what has become of his people. But more importantly, the words and the images used here are that of the Exodus. See, it was God in the Exodus who heard the groanings of his people in slavery in Egypt, and he saw their plight. And in response, God took decisive and powerful actions to save them. So what the psalmist is trying to say here, I'm pleading, is that he's calling God to do the same again. Look at us and save us. Now those in the discipleship groups may have a good discussion on who the son is in verse 15. The man of your right hand and the son of man in verse 17. Who do they refer to? Now in the Old Testament, you can see on the slide, in the Old Testament, the son can either refer to the king of the nation or the nation itself, right? And perhaps we need not draw too sharp a distinction here because the state of the nation is closely tied to the king. But nonetheless, the context suggests that the son in verse 15 is most likely referring to the nation Israel and implying the parallelism too in verse 17 where both verses are about the son being made strong by God the Son of Man is most likely referring to Israel as well. Of course, we know that the later Jewish traditions read this verse with a messianic sense, and some Christians will see that as a prophecy regarding Jesus. Well, that is possible, but it is not the, what the psalmist intended to be. 
at the, at the time of writing. But what is clear from this psalm is that the psalmist is basing his petition on the closeness of their relationship with God. He's pleading for Israel as a son of God. See, they are not strangers. They are not a mere vessel. They are intimately related. See, God chose them to be His people amongst all the peoples of the world. God made a covenant with them to bless them and make them a great nation. He kept His covenant by bringing them out of Egypt and to the Promised Land. And when they are now in such a sad situation, and deservingly so because of their sin, who can they call upon to help and save them? But the answer is still this faithful, covenantal, covenant-making God. So the last refrain in verse 19, calls out to the Lord God of hosts to restore and to save. Now we already explained what the God of hosts means. Now there is the added title of the Lord in his plea. See, the Lord in caps in the English Bible is the translation of God's Hebrew name, Yahweh. See, Yahweh is the name that was revealed to Israel and also the name that made a covenant with Israel during the Exodus time. As such, the psalmist is calling this covenant-making God to remember them, to be faithful once again to His promises to bless them. See, God was faithful to prosper them in the past. And God is also faithful to punish them in the present. So who can they count on for the future? There is no one apart from this God whom Israel can petition to pardon them in His mercy and faithfulness. Who should God's people call on to be saved? It is firstly to call on God, the shepherd king who guides and protects His people. Secondly, it is to call on the God of hosts who is able to defend and fight for them. But thirdly, it is to call Yahweh, Lord God of hosts, who will be gracious and faithful to save and restore them. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, we may not be in the same dire situation as the Israelites in exile. However, we can be caught, caught up in the suffering as part of this fallen world. Just as the faithful in Israel, such as the Psalmist, were not spared, we might not be as well. Perhaps some of us are caught caught up in the world's persecution and cancel culture of God's people. Now you might have read in the news that a, a CEO of a very popular Australia Rules football club was appointed and then forced to resign within 24 hours. What great sin did he commit to deserve this? Well, the sin was that he was part of the leadership of an evangelical church that affirms the biblical teachings of marriage between one man and one woman. And if you think that Melbourne is too far away, I heard a testimony of a local 15-year-old, who's not from ARPC. She was targeted in school because she 
held the same biblical values. She, she didn't go out to be like a firebrand preacher of her values. However, her fellow students who disagreed with her, with her gossiped about her, ignored her, shamed her, and made all sorts of remarks on social media about her. We can be thankful that our government is taking action against such behaviours at school and work. But my friends, the faithful Christian will still face the brunt of it. So who are you going to call on and plead to when you face such things? For others, it could be the unfair treatment you face in school or work. You try to be the faithful Christian by being honest and diligent. However, colleagues or, or project mates take advantage of you. Sometimes justice doesn't come easily and you have to tank the work without necessarily getting the right reward. Who are you going to call and plead to? And perhaps you are struggling with your own sin. It may be pride, it may be lust, it may be idolatry, greed, or discontentment. Whether it is past or present, open or hidden sin, you are suffering from the guilt and the weight of it. You may even be experiencing the consequences of your sin in your life. Who are you going to call and plead to? Well, Psalm 80 tells us that we are to call on this shepherd king, the God of the heavenly armies and the faithful covenant-making God. We can call on him because he's able to restore and to save. He's the king of the universe and nothing is beyond his sovereign powers. Of course, all the, the all-powerful God may not save you immediately out of your situation, but he didn't do that for the Psalmist. He didn't do that for Israel. But that's not because he lacks the ability to do that. He has his purposes and timings which we do not know fully. But yet God is the only one who can ultimately turn things around you, around and the person and to persevere you in all this. And we as God's people can go to God with confidence, not only because He's able, but because He's willing. See, God is the faithful shepherd who guides and protects His people. We can even be more confident about it as Christians. See, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He laid down his life to save us from sin and, and to give us life. And as we read in the opening passage, Revelation 7, God will shelter us in his presence. He will guide us to living waters. And instead of eating bread with tears, he will wipe every tear from our eyes in the end. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever you are experiencing and struggling with, 
Go to him. Go to him to plead and petition. For he is able and willing to save us as our shepherd king, the God of hosts, and the faithful Lord of the covenant. Let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word to us through your faithful psalmist. Just as he did not give up in coming to you despite his difficult circumstances, let us also come to you in faith, pleading for your help and salvation. Bring to our minds and our hearts your character, your faithfulness, your sovereignty, and your love especially in the Lord Jesus, so that we can persevere till we see you face to face. And on that day, you will wipe away every single tear so that we will be basking in fellowship and in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.